Well, happy Thanksgiving weekend, Summit family. My name is Curtis. I'm one of your pastors here. Um, hope everybody had a fantastic Thursday Thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but I did. Uh, my wife cooked it up. It was just us. We stayed home. Uh, nobody really came to hang out with us. Our families were doing their own thing, and I swear she cooked enough for about 24 people, and it was absolutely delicious. It was fantastic, and so I hope you had some good food. Um, how many of y'all had at least at least two servings on Thursday? At least two, th- two servings. Okay. If you didn't have two servings, I'm just disappointed in you. How many of y'all had at least three? Three, three or more? Raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. Come on. Three or more. How many of y'all had at least four? Four or more. Anybody? Anybody? Okay, we got a few. Yesterday, somebody had five. I wasn't even mad at him. I was just impressed. I think that's fantastic. And so I um, hope you are still eating off those, those leftovers. Um, man, I hope you had a day where you were able to rest and really reflect and think about uh, how good God has been to you. Hope you were able to spend time with loved ones and, and maybe some, some friends. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I was able to spend the day just thinking uh, with my wife and my three girls and just really reflecting on how good I believe God has been. Uh, Ten years ago, God saved me. Uh, about eight years ago, he brought us here to this, this church. Um, I'm thankful for my small group and the community God has put me in. Uh, I'm thankful to be a part of, you know, the last five weeks we've been looking at just what God has done in and through the Summit Church over the last 16 years. And I say that, I'm not bragging on the Summit Church. I'm bragging on the God of the Summit Church because we have seen him take this thing from 300 to well over 11,000 every single week. And I promise you that is not because of anything we have done here. That is because God has put his hand of grace on this church. And so we want to remain prayerfully faithful in that God. And I'm excited to see where he takes us in the next 16 years. Um, you know, when you're part of it every single weekend, I think it's real easy to forget uh, how, how abnormal this, this really is. I tell my small group and I tell my team all the time that for them to remember how good God has been at the Summit Church, I'm going to send them on a what I call a church appreciation tour, which really consists of going to any other church besides the Summit Church and then coming back and remembering how awesome God has been here. And so um, I'm really grateful for this church. I'm grateful to be one of your pastors here. I'm just thankful for where God has us. Um, you know, Thanksgiving always reminds me of traditions, of traditions. I don't know if y'all have many family traditions. One of ours uh, we did on Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, we always go get a Christmas tree, um, real Christmas tree. I'm a real Christmas tree and a charcoal grill kind of guy, okay? Amen. Um, so we went and got our Christmas tree. Uh, one, of the, one of our traditions growing up and that we still do sometimes um, is, is we pray the same prayer. Growing up in my family, we prayed the same prayer before every meal. Uh, if you know this prayer, say it with me. The prayer went like this. It went, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands, we all are fed. Thank you, God, for daily bread. Amen. 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 Um, the other thing, in the church I grew up in, uh, you know, kind of like whenever we were ending service, you know, like here, when we're ending service, we say, you are, you are sent. Um, you're not sent right now. Some of y'all just got way too excited about that. Um, <laughs> just like we say, you are sent. The church I grew up in, if you know this, say it back to me. The, the, the pastor would say, we'd hold hands and he'd say, God is good. All the time, some of y'all are saved, all right, and all the time, God is good. <laughs> that's, what, that's what he would say, right? And we just say these things out of, out of tradition, uh, you know, for whatever reason, and, and we never really stop to think, well, I mean, do I, do I really believe that? Like, I don't know if I ever really stop to think. You know, sure, God is great, God is good, but what about when life is not? And yeah, I know that God is good all the time, and I know in my head that all the time God is good, except for when he's not. I mean, if we're being honest in here, does God really feel good all the time? 
Everything you see in your life, everything you experience, all of your circumstances, does God really feel good and loving and kind and holy and perfect and wonderful all the time? And not to be a Grinch, but every single person listening to me right now is either going through, just got out of, or eventually heading into something, right? If you have not, or if you are not already, every single one of us are going to be faced with questions about God, like, hey, if he is so great, then why is he letting this anxiety take over my life? If he's so good, then why did I just spend Thanksgiving with one less loved one at the table this year? Because, Pastor, he doesn't feel good in the midst of this divorce. He doesn't feel so great when the teenager that I have spent 16 years praying for and pouring into has now decided to abandon any semblance of morals and godliness in their life. And then you come to a church like this because somebody invited you and they tell you how awesome it is and you come in expecting to be comforted and I'm up here telling you about how awesome God is and the huge, big, awesome, amazing things that God is doing in and through this church when in your life you'd be happy if God would just do anything. Just something would suffice. See, everyone has had or will have at some point the experience of where is God? Is he really good? Why won't he do something about what I'm going through? Why does he seem silent in the midst of my situation? And so the title of my sermon today is God is great, God is good, life is not. God is great, God is good, life is not. And the question that I want to tackle this morning is how do I have confidence in God when he seems silent in my situation? How do I have confidence in God when he seems silent in my situation? That word confidence, that word confidence literally means with faith. How do I live life with faith in God when what I'm experiencing in my life does not match up with what I believe about my God? What do you do when what you see with your eyes is different from what you believe in your heart? How do I have confidence in God when he seems silent? And so if you have your Bibles, and, and I hope you do, go ahead and grab them. Go ahead and grab them. This is what I want you to do. I want you to open up your Bible to the table of contents that's right at the front, um, to the table of contents. Everybody get there. And then uh, I want you to find the book of Psalms, book of Psalms, find that page number, turn over to Psalm 77, Psalm 77. Some of y'all were just dreading that moment when I told you what chapter to open to, and you're like, I'm not going to know where it is, and the person beside me is going to know that I don't come to church that often. I just helped you out. So welcome to the Summit Church. We are always helping you out. Psalm 77 is where we're going to be this morning, where I want to look at a psalm from a guy named Asaph who asks these very same questions. And while you're turning there, here's what you need to know about Asaph. Asaph was, um, he was boys with King David. King David, one of the most famous characters in all of, all of the Bible. Um, he was boys with King David. God called them to minister to Israel together. So they're doing their thing. They're ministering and, um, about the same time period. And when David is, is setting up the kingdom of Israel, when David is appointing people, he looks at Asaph and he says, hmm, what should I do with you? And he says, well, Asaph, you're kind of high maintenance and you wear skinny jeans. Boom, worship leader. All right. And so um, Asaph becomes a worship leader of Israel. Um, that's not how he got there, but he was a worship leader. <laughs> he was a worship leader. Um, and so he he was used to leading God's people to these really high levels of praise. And he wrote a number of psalms. But what's interesting about the psalms that he writes, you would expect them to be full of, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, all these things. And, and sure, yes, they are. But actually, most of his psalms are not necessarily about praise to God. They are him walking through a bunch of pain. 
And so what we're going to see here in Psalm 77 is that Asaph is a guy who is going through a time of great despair and affliction. And yet, even in that time, his circumstances do not change, yet he manages to find relief in God even when he never gets a response from God. So I want to look at his strategy for fighting discouragement and doubt and darkness, and I want us to see today how Asaph has confidence, how he has faith in God, even when God seems silent. And so Psalm 77, at all of our locations, why don't you stand with me? Why don't you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Psalm chapter 77, beginning in verse 1, Asaph says, I cry aloud to God, Aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember, somebody say remember. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember. Somebody say remember. Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And then here's the turning point. How does he have confidence in God when what he sees doesn't match up with what he believes? Verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds because your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. And then he just keeps worshiping. Verse 16, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea and your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God, this morning, would you incline our hearts to your understanding? Would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things out of your word? Would you unite our hearts to fear your name and would you satisfy us this morning with your unfailing word? God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. I don't know about you, but when I read a psalm like this, it is so easy for me to see myself in it. Particularly those first nine verses where he is just going through all sorts of pain and he's being honest about that pain. Which isn't surprising considering that the simplest descriptions of the psalms is that they were the inspired prayer and praise book of Israel. See, the Psalms are revelations of truth, not truth abstractly out there, but truth in terms of the human experience, which without even knowing it is why so many of us love reading the Psalms. 
Because when you read the Psalms, you see yourself. You see your situation. You see that the psalmist experience is your experience. And that is no accident. See, God put the Psalms in the Bible not only to call us to great heights of praise and worship, but also to comfort us in very dark seasons of discouragement and doubt. And Asaph, again, a worship leader, is a guy who has been to the highest of mountaintops. And yet here we find him in Psalm 77 in the lowest of valleys. Because you may enjoy God, you may experience God, and you may brag on God on the mountaintops. But it's in the valley that you learn to trust and obey and know him deeply. On the mountaintops, I love to praise God for the what. But it's usually in the valley that I learn to praise God for who he is. And so in Psalm 77, Asaph is in a valley. And he goes to cry out to God, to pray to God. And yet when he cries out, all that he finds, all that he experiences is a God who seems absent and unconcerned and silent in the midst of his suffering. And yet somehow, we just read it, by the end of this psalm, even when nothing in his circumstances had changed, he manages to have confidence in God. And see, I believe this psalm shows us at least two ways to have confidence in God when he seems silent. How do I have confidence in God when he seems silent? The first way is to be honest with God through prayer. To be honest with God through prayer. Now, notice I didn't just say pray. I didn't just say, say pray. I said to pray honestly. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1, he says, I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God, and he will hear me. Two key words there, to God. This is so important because in the day of trouble, Asaph didn't go complain to his friends. He didn't try to numb his situation by partying. He didn't try to ignore it by sinking himself into his work. He prayed to God. Being afflicted, he prayed. Yes, he was full of complaints, very loud complaints at that, complaints that he wrote down and documented, but he directed those complaints toward God in honest prayer. Summit family, days of trouble must be days of prayer, especially when God seems to have gone silent in your life. It's in those times that we must diligently seek him until we find him and pray honestly, knowing that you can bring your complaints and your questions to him. God has thick skin. He's a big boy. He can handle anything you have to throw at him, I promise. I love the way Alexander McLaren, who was an 1800s English minister, put this. He said, um, he said doubts, doubts are better put into plain speech than lying diffused and darkening like poisonous mists in his heart. A thought, be it good or bad, can be dealt with when it is made articulate. When our lives are dark, God wants us, desires for us, calls us to be honest with him through prayer. He calls us to be honest with him, but he also calls us to be honest with one another. See, God wants us to be honest with one another, to lament with one another, to carry one another's burdens, to weep with those who are weeping. After all, what we see here is Asaph didn't just pray this to God. He wrote it down for all of us to share. And so let's keep reading as he's being honest. Verse 2, he says, In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Day and night, this seems to be never ending for him. Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. 
Again, he's a worship leader. He knows what he's doing. He's trying to remember God. He's trying to recall God's goodness. Yet when he does that, instead of bringing him comfort, the exact opposite happens. And it ends up only making his situation worse. Look at verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. Now God just seems like a bully. (laughs) I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He's saying, God, you used to be good to me. What the heck happened? Verse 6. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Remember, again, he's a worship leader. He's pretty good at knowing how to um, hear this incredibly graciously. He's a worship leader, so he's pretty good at knowing how to stoke an emotional flame that is flickering and dying out. You understand what I mean by that? So he says, let me remember my song in the night. See, usually when he's going through a valley, when he's going through a tough time, the way that what would draw him back close to Jesus was for him to sing. And so he's saying, let me remember my song in the night because that's usually what draws me back to Jesus when I feel like I'm in a valley. But now for some reason, it's not working. Have you ever had this experience when, I mean, what do you do as a believer when what you used to do to draw yourself close to God just doesn't work anymore? You used to spend hours in your Bible and feel like God was talking directly to you. Now it just feels like spending time in your Bible is just part of a checklist of things that good Christians do. You used to spend hours on end talking about the things of the Lord, and now he's just not quite as exciting as sports or politics or Instagram or whatever else. That worship song you used to love and that would draw you so near to Jesus has just become another swipe on your Spotify playlist. That's what he's going through here. And it just keeps getting worse because he moves from wondering about his circumstances to actually outright questioning God's character. Just look at how brutally candid and honest this prayer gets. It's almost uncomfortable. He says in verse 7, he says, God, are you going to spurn me forever? Are you never again going to be favorable to me? Has your steadfast love forever ceased? Are your promises at an end for all time? Did you forget to be gracious to me? Have you in anger shut up your compassion toward me? The very core of what he's asking is, has God changed? Has his character changed? Have his ways changed? And some of you hear that honest prayer and it almost makes you uneasy. You might even think it's blasphemous because it feels so disrespectful to talk to such a holy God in such terms like this. And perhaps that's how you grew up, you know, never being allowed to question God. You were told that the Christian life is all praise, it's all reference, it's no questions. You just take God, or no questions, you just take God as he is. You don't question anything that he does. A friend of mine who's on, um, he's actually one of our pastors here now, um, him and his wife, the last few years, there's really no other way to put it, have just been going through hell with with a health situation with one of their kids. And um, and they spent a long time, as he heard I was preaching on, on this psalm this weekend, uh, he grabbed me in the hallway this week and he said, man, I've, I've got, just got to tell you. He said, whether you use this or not, i just got to tell you what God has been doing in our lives over the last couple years. Um, but he essentially said, this is exactly where he was at. Exactly where he was at. I want you to, so after we, we talked, he sent me an email and um, this is what he said. He said, I used to think that if I really told God how I was feeling, that I would be seen as weak in my faith. He said, I used to think that if I came to God with all of my questions and my anger and my confusion, that God would sit in heaven scoffing and disappointed in me for not trusting him enough. But instead, he says, 
what I came to realize is that God wants me to come to him with those doubts and questions and frustrations. That actually my heartaches and confusions and questions, when directed toward him, wasn't a lack of faith, but rather they were an act of deep abiding faith because I was laying my burdens before the only one who had the power to heal them. He said, in order to let God care for me, I first had to cast my cares on him. And that meant being honest with where I was in both my head and my heart. Now, his circumstances, much like Asaph's circumstances, did not change. They still have not changed. They are still walking through this. They are still in the midst of their struggle. But their confidence in God has become unshakable. And it began with them just being honest with God, knowing that God desires for them to come to him in prayer. Listen, days of trouble must be days of honest prayer. That means that if you are going through something this morning, let me tell you, you are not going to be able to drink it away. You cannot laugh it away. You cannot sleep it away. You cannot party it away. You cannot sex it away. You cannot buy it away. You cannot ignore it away. Today, your day of trouble can become your day of trust if you choose to pray honestly to God and allow his grace to cover your situation. And you might be in a place where you're asking those very same questions. God, have you changed? Do you even care? Do your promises even apply to me? But here's what I want to declare to you today. If fear, if depression, if despair, if sadness, if grief asks these types of questions, I want you to pray to God honestly about how you are feeling and then move forward and let your faith answer those questions from Scripture. Which brings me to the second way that Psalm 77 calls us to have confidence during his silence, which is to remember God through his word. The best way to pray honestly is to remember God through his word. See, for Asaph, something happened. We read it. Something happened between verses 7 and 10 when he was so low and so discouraged and verses 13 and 20 when he was so full of worship and confidence. Was it that everything got better? No, nothing had changed. What happened in that time? What happened in verses 11 and 12 when worship swallowed up his doubt, when boldness swallowed up his fears? Well, let's look at it again. Verse 11, he said, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work, and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Asaph's strategy for fighting discouragement and doubt and darkness, which can be your strategy today, is to remember, to ponder, and to meditate on the deeds and the wonders and the works of God. Which begs the question, how are the works and deeds available to our minds today? By the word of God. By the word of God. We remember and we ponder and we meditate by the written word of God. We fellowship with Christ through the written word of God. We pray and talk to him on the basis of what we know through the written word of God. We hear him speak to us through the written word of God. He shows us his character and his will through the written word of God. We find comfort in his promises through the written word of God, which is why we say around here all the time, when life cuts you, we want you to bleed God's word. 
Summit Church, there is an absolute connection between the amount of confidence that you have in God and the amount of scripture, hear me clearly, that is in your heart. Not the amount of scripture that's just in your head, the amount of scripture that is in your heart. Because then, when life or when the enemy or when your feelings or when your emotions or when your circumstances or when others attack you, the word becomes your best weapon. I was talking to another one of our pastors this week, and um, he heard that point. I was talking through a couple of my points with him, and um, he, he actually took issue with that point because he, uh, he said, man, I know this is going to sound really bad, but he said, I, I don't know if I agree with that because um, he said, I, I would argue that I probably have more scripture memorized than any pastor on staff at the Summit Church. And then he said, yet, I feel like I struggle, struggle with doubting God's goodness probably as much as any pastor at the Summit Church. And so my question to him was, that scripture's in your head, but the times in your life that God has really moved, how did it make its way down to your heart? And for him, he said it was community. It was his small group. It was God putting other people in his life to pray over him and encourage him and prod him and move him along in the faith so that the scripture that was in his head would actually make its way down to his heart. Listen, God may seem silent at times, but friends, he is not. God has spoken through his word, and as Luther once said, when scripture speaks, God speaks. Remember, Asaph, he finds relief, but his circumstances had not changed. Hear me clearly, this isn't a just change your perspective and all of your problems go away type faith. That's not how life works, that's not how faith works, and that is certainly not how God works. His problems are still there, but a change in perspective ends up leading him to very great heights of praise. For all you English majors, when I was reading Psalm 77, I know you were paying attention to the pronouns. And what you saw in the first nine verses, when Asaph is so low and everything is so dark, what you saw were, he, uh, how, many, how many were there? One, two, um, I'm not actually counting them. I'm just looking in my notes to try to find what I wrote down here. So um, <laughs> in the first nine verses, there are 18 occurrences of the first person singular pronoun, I or me. When everything is so dark, 18 times Asaph says, I or me. Only six times does he, does he say anything about God. But then a change in perspective, those last 10 verses where he is so full of worship and praise, there are 21 mentions of God and zero references to himself. That, my friends, is what's called a change in perspective. Because Asaph knew that you can't always choose what crosses your mind, but you can choose what stays there. You can't always choose what crosses your mind, but you can choose what stays there. So what we see here is that this is Asaph choosing to meditate on the deeds, choosing to remember, choosing to ponder on the works and the wonders of a sovereign, loving God, rather than looking at his situation through the lens of his feelings. This is him choosing to call to mind the deeds and wonders and works of God in the past, which then gives him confidence in God in the present. Regardless of how you feel, God isn't, God never has been, and God never will be silent in your pain because where scripture speaks, God speaks. What this means, what this means is that when what you see in your life, when what you see in your life doesn't match up with what God has said in his word, you need to always go with what he said. When what you see doesn't match up with what God has said, always go with what he has said. So let's just walk through this um, based on some of the questions that, that Asaph had. 
This might be what you are seeing in your life right now. God, has your steadfast love forever ceased in my life? Because what I'm going through right now, you don't feel so loving and kind. That might be what you see, but here's what God has said in Psalm 103, that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those, through those who fear him. So when what you see doesn't match up with what God has said, go with what he said. Some of you, this might be where you're living right now. God, have you forgotten to be gracious? Because this is what you see in your life. You see how good God seems to be to everybody else. You see how God is giving somebody else all the things that they're asking for, and yet God is not giving anything to you, and you feel like he has forgotten to be gracious. This might be what you have seen or what you see in your life, yet God has said in Exodus 34 that the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So when what you see doesn't match up with what God has said, go with what he said. God, are you going to spurn me forever? Are you going to spurn me forever? Some of you feel like God just is ignoring you, like he could care less about what is going on in your life. That might be what you see, but here's what God has said in his word in Psalm 94. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. That is just one of the many things he has said. He has also said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that when you are going through something, remember that when you are going through the fire, he has promised that you will not be burned. When you are going through the waters, that they will not overtake you. That when the rivers come upon you, you will not drown. For he is the Lord your God, a God who is gracious and loving, a God who will not forsake or abandon his people. People. And so if you are wondering, God, are you going to spurn me forever? If that's what you see, but yet what God has said is that he will not abandon, go with what he has said. Last one. God, have you shut up your compassion toward me? Have you shut up your compassion toward me? This might be what you see, yet what God has said in Lamentations 3 is that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases that his mercies never come to an end, that they are new every morning. God, great is your faithfulness. When what you see doesn't match up with what God has said, always go with what he has said. Because listen, every second of every day, your union, your relationship with Christ, the way you experience, the way you walk with Jesus will be shaped by, will be sustained by, and will be carried by the word of God. Which means that if you are not in the word, that you are going to be weak, you are going to be fragile, you are going to be easily deceived, and you are going to be easily swayed. Because a Christian without a Bible is a Christian without much of a backbone. That's why the old Southern Baptist preacher used to say that a Bible falling apart belongs to a man that ain't. Amen? Amen. The word of God is what enables the people of God to live their lives to the glory of God so that they can become immovably confident in the character of God. The single most effective way of bolstering your confidence in God and his character is by spending time in the word because you can only know God in as much or you can only trust God in as much as you know him. And how much you know him is directly tied to how well you know his word. And you might say, you might say, I've, I've, I've tried that, Pastor. I try to open it up and I try to read it and I just don't understand and nothing makes sense to me. That's why we have resources here at this church for you. That's why we have small groups and community to read in community. That's why we have the Summit Institute. We have Bible study principle classes for you. We have things, resources to help you study the Bible. 
One of my favorite resources when I was just thinking about this sermon um, is this book. This is probably top three favorite books of mine of all time. Um, it's called Spiritual Depression. Uh, it's by the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, man, I, seriously, top three favorite books. But particularly if you're going through something, this is probably a, a fantastic starting point aside from Scripture. Um, you might need more than this. You might need to get involved in, in, in some of our counseling ministries or our G4 groups. But I would highly recommend this book um, if you are currently find your, finding yourself in a valley. Um, here's what he says in this book. Here's one of the, one of the outtakes from that book. He says, he says, whatever your circumstances at this moment, bring all you know to be true of your relationship to God to bear upon it. I do not suggest that you will be able to understand everything that is happening. You may not have a full explanation of it, but you will know for certain that God is not unconcerned because that is impossible. He said, the one who has done the greatest thing of all for you must be concerned about you in everything. And though the clouds are thick, and though you cannot see his face, you know he is there. He says, hold on to that. You say you don't see his smile? I agree that these clouds prevent my seeing him, but he is there. And therefore you say to yourself, you say, I believe this. I am resting on this. I am certain of this. And though I do not understand what is happening to me, I am holding on to this. Here's what the doc is saying. God, even when I can't trace you, even when I can't track you, God, I can still trust you on the basis of what I see in your word. Let me give you a secret to living with joy in the Christian life. When you know the who, you don't have to know the how. It doesn't make it any easier, but when you know the who, you don't always have to know the how. And you might hear that and you say, well, pastor, if you just knew my situation, if you just knew what is going on in my life, you'd understand why it is impossible for me to come in here and try to worship and act like nothing is wrong. See, what you're thinking probably is that Asaph started to really believe in God and really worship God because God just made everything better in his life, right? That's not it. Asaph is still sitting in his darkness just like you. So what's changed? His circumstances didn't change. Asaph did. I had you say it out loud back in verses 3 and 6. He tried to remember God, but it didn't work. Because, yeah, sometimes what you need is a change in perspective, but other times what you need is persistence, and it is persistence that is going to lead you to the greatest heights of praise. For the third time in verses 11 and 12, this is the third time he's trying to remember God, to ponder, to meditate. The third time it is persistence that leads him to this level of praise. In verses 11 and 12, he chose to remember and then list out some of the greatest acts of grace and power that have characterized God's dealings with his people. And so in verse 15, he said, God, I remember how you brought Israel out of Egypt. In verse 16, I remember how you divided the Red Sea before them. Verse 17, I remember how you destroyed the Egyptians. In verse 20, he says, I remember how you took your people Israel under your own guidance and protection. Let me ask you, what would it look like for you to do this very thing? to sit down, to remember, to ponder, to meditate, to list out all the ways that God has been good to you. Pastor Charlie Dates, 
If y'all don't know about Charlie Dates, y'all need to know about some Charlie Dates. Pastor Charlie Dates says that at some point in your life, you're going to come to see that worship is not only personal and intimate, but it's actually something that you need to remind yourself to do. And the way you remind yourself to do it is to remember how good God has been. He says, yes, there are times when you come to church and you need to be pushed and prodded and encouraged, but there are other times where nobody should have to push or prod or encourage you because you've got to learn to talk to your own self and to remind yourself of how good God has been in your life as evidenced in his word. He says that you've got to remember that you did not wake yourself up this morning, but that God is the one who gave you life today and that his mercies are new every single morning. You've got to remember that you are not the one who stayed up all night while you were sleeping and kept watch over yourself and sustained you when you went to bed, but that God is the one who watched over you and kept you and sustained you. You got to remember that I don't care how good you are at your job, that you are not the one that put money in your bank. That was God's grace. You are not the one who gave your bones strength to move today. You are not the one whose mind you gave strength to work. God did that in your life. And then you have to remember the ultimate thing, your salvation, the thing that you could not earn, that there was nothing you could do to obtain, that only you could freely received that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You remember that. And then rather than how could I praise God right now, that question moves to how have I made it from last Sunday to this Sunday? And then you remember all of the ways that God has been good to you. And you tell yourself before you get to church, you say, I'm going to act a fool in church because God has been so good to me. And that's what enables me to speak to my soul and say, oh, soul, you better bless the Lord because the Lord has been good to you based on what I remember in his word. I think I just remembered I forgot to put deodorant on this morning. <laughs> I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> That's so random. <laughs> if you were to sit down at the end of each day, and write out and remember and ponder and meditate on all the ways that God has been good to you, oh, how your perspective would change. You would go from where is God to where is another piece of paper because I don't have enough to list out all the ways that he has been good to me. Brothers and sisters, our faith is not based on what we see. It's not based on what we want or what we desire or what we feel. Our faith is based on the character and the goodness and the nature of God. We live by that faith. Our faith is not based on things getting better. Because you know what? It just might not. You might battle that illness for the rest of your life. Your wife may never come back. You may never get married even though you so desperately want to be. But here's the thing. Our circumstances are just temporary. But praise God, our God is not. And as difficult as life is for you right now, the Apostle Paul says that it is just a light and momentary affliction compared to the goodness and joy that God has stored up for you in eternity. How much of that joy you taste in this life, honestly, it's up to God. Whether you taste that joy for eternity is up to you. 
Whatever you're going through today, God may seem silent, but dearly beloved, he is not absent. And he proved that love to you once and for all at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, we remember that Jesus really did experience the temporary silence of God so that you and I could experience the eternal love of God. I close with this. In 1860, there was a a poet and songwriter, um, a poet named uh, Anna Warner. Anna's sister, Susan, uh, would often take care of children and at that time, she was taking care of a child who um, essentially was, was on their deathbed. This child was dying. Um, Susan didn't know how else to comfort her. And so um, Susan penned a letter to her sister, Anna, the poet, and said, Anna, would you, would you be willing just to write a poem, a poem to this dying child? Um, just remind this child that, uh, just write something that can, can comfort this child. And so um, Anna sat down. She's a believer in Jesus. Anna sat down and she grabbed her pen and she thought to herself, what, what could I write right now that would bring this dying child the most comfort in the darkest of times? Then she began to put pen to paper and the words that she wrote were, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In that terribly painful moment, she believed that what would bring the most comfort was for someone to remember the very simple yet profound message that Jesus loves you and that you can know that because the Bible tells you so. Jesus loves me is the most central declaration of the Christian faith and the very cornerstone of the nature of God. Jesus loves me. How do I know? Because while I was a sinner, Christ died for my soul. One of the ways we often remind ourselves of that, one of the ways we remember how good God has been to us at the Summit Church is by taking the Lord's Supper together. And so right now at all of our locations, I'm gonna ask that our teams begin coming forward to to pass out the bread and the cup. That's what I want us to do together as a church, to remember together these symbols of Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood shed for you. And listen, if you're here with us this weekend and you are not a believer in Jesus, you have not put your faith in Christ, I would simply and respectfully ask that you do not take the bread and the cup, that you just allow them to pass over you because what you need is not the bread and the cup. What you need is what the bread and the cup represent, which is Jesus's love for you shown by his shed blood on the cross. And you might say, I I hear that. I want this peace that you're talking about. I need this peace that you're talking about. If that's you, after service today, you can come find any one of our pastors, anybody with a lanyard, any one of our volunteers, and they would love to talk to you about what the next steps look like in you placing your faith in Jesus. I want you just to sit for a few minutes, wherever you are, I want you to sit and just remember Maybe you need to list out. Maybe you need to think about, ponder, meditate on all the ways that God has been good to you. And you might say, I I can't think of any. You made it here today. Somehow you got here today. You got clothes on your back. 
You got people here that would love to pray for you. Start there. Start somewhere. You sit, you remember, you meditate, you ponder on all the ways and the works of God. And then we'll come back and we'll take the Lord's Supper together.